Our gracious Heavenly Father, O Lord, we come before you with reverence and awe, knowing that you are a God who is glorious and majestic. We want to talk about even what that means this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, work in the hearts of your people, including mine, to have a renewed um, passion for your fame and your glory on this earth. I pray that even as we think about the year of evangelism, um, that, Father, your glory would be the greatest thing that we would keep in mind in the hearts and lives of people, including our own. Father, thank you for the many ways that you're already making yourself known in and through this body. Many members here who are so faithful and diligent at living Christ before others and sharing the message of Jesus, the good news. Father, thank you for their faithfulness. We pray this morning as well for those in our body who are hurting, those who are experiencing spiritual turmoil. Lord, I don't know the details, but Lord, you do. I pray for those who are, Lord, um, sick, who are ill, who are here amongst us, and they've been trying to recover from that. I pray for your precious hand upon them, for your comfort and for your encouragement upon them. I pray, Father, for our world and our country. Lord, there's so much going on. I pray for your comfort upon the family members of those who perished um, when that plane was uh, went down, Lord, and in the Middle East. I just pray that you would use these things that are taking place for your glory to advance the cause of your Son here on this earth. Use us. Use us as Christians, Lord, as individuals, as families, and as churches, uh, local and um, at large, to speak forth the truth of Christ to a generation that, Lord, needs desperately to consider the hope that is found in Jesus alone. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 is our passage for this morning. And the title of this message is God's Heart for His Son. God's Heart for His Son. Now, last week we kicked off, as my brother uh, Tim um, shared earlier, the year of evangelism with this five-week series titled God's Good News. And as we discussed uh, the series as a leadership, um, I want to just reiterate what my brother said a little while ago, that we wanted to make sure that not only did we call one another to evangelism and to share Christ uh, this year, um, but also we wanted to talk a lot with you about what motivates evangelism. What fuels or moves us to obey God's command to make disciples, beginning obviously with sharing Christ with other people, evangelism. The last thing that we want to do as leaders is guilt trip you or guilt trip ourselves into sharing Christ and, um, and being driven to maybe superficially resolve for a time to share Jesus and to be all about that and then eventually just kind of give up, right? Because we get discouraged or because of fear or because we're shy or whatever, you know, oftentimes we can renew our commitment to many things at the turn of the year, including such things like evangelism. But if our heart is not in evangelism, and we don't understand the motivation why we are to do this, then it's going to be short-lived. First comes the heart, the inner affections, the, the passion that drives the action, right? The hands, the pursuit of others. 
We need to have a, con- a conviction in our hearts that we need to be sharing Christ for the right reasons. And that's going to drive and fuel in a long-term way um, our sharing of Jesus with other people in our world. And this is why the first two messages in this five-part series is really focused on the heart of evangelism. And by that, we mean the motivation What fuels or should move us to want to share Christ with other people? And last week, Pastor Tim talked to us about God's heart for the lost. That what should motivate us to want to share Jesus with other people should be gazing upon the great compassion of God as he showed us from the life of Jonah. A man who didn't want to go to a a certain people, and yet God showed Jonah his great glory and his great compassion for these people, that regardless of ethnic background or persuasion, that regardless of social status, Jonah was to, out of love and compassion, imitating the God of uh, the, the one true God. He was to share Christ with those people. God's heart for the lost, then, should be a motivation for us to share Christ. And today we want to look at another motivation and perhaps even a greater motivation to evangelize, to share our faith. And that is God's heart for his son. God's heart for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, should motivate you and I to share the gospel with people, to share the message of Christ with others. And it should go without saying. I don't think anybody would cry out, get up in an outrage, say, no, that is not the motivation. I don't really care about the Son of God. None of us would say that. None of us would disagree with that statement that that God's heart for His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, should motivate us to share Jesus with others. But more of the issue for us, beloved, is that we do not function that way. We do not live that way. We do not live mindful of the fact that we are here to exalt Jesus. And that the greatest way that we can do that is by sharing the message of hope found in Jesus Christ. We just don't live mindful of that reality. That's what it is. In his excellent book, Rejoicing in Christ, listen to what Michael Reeves writes about not keeping Christ central in the Christian life. He writes, it's not just that we as Christians are self-focused, but that we naturally gravitate, it seems, towards anything but Jesus And Christians, almost as much as anyone, whether it's the Christian worldview, grace, the Bible, or the gospel, as if they were things in themselves that could save us. Even the cross can get abstracted from Jesus, as if the wood had some power of its own. Other things, wonderful things, vital concepts, beautiful discoveries so easily edge Jesus aside. Precious theological concepts meant to describe Christ and Christ's work get treated as things in their own right. He becomes just another brick in the wall. But the center, the cornerstone, the jewel in the crown of Christianity is not an idea. It's not a system or a thing. It's not even the gospel as such. It is Jesus Christ. He is not a mere topic, a subject we can pick out from a menu of options. Without Christ, our gospel or our system, however coherent or grace-filled or Bible-based, simply is not Christian. It will only be Christian to the extent that it is about Christ. And then what we make of Him will govern what we mean by the word gospel. I'm going to dare to say, in fact, that most of our Christian problems and errors of thought come about precisely through forgetting or marginalizing Christ. That is, that despite all our apparent Christianness, we fail to build our lives and thoughts upon the rock who is Jesus Christ, end quote. 
So true and well stated, isn't it? Christianity is about Christ. Christianity is about Christ. Christ is the one who distinguishes Christianity, think about this, from all other systems of religion, from all other ideologies, from all systems of thought. It's the person and the work of Christ. Christ is central. And even more, as we will see this morning, Christ is to be exalted. Our greatest motivation for everything that we do as Christians, including evangelism, is that God be glorified as His Son is exalted in the hearts and lives of people. Isn't this what happened with us as believers? Prior to coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, what was your life like? And it could be summed up this way. You were a self-worshipper. You were a self-exalter. You exalted yourself. You committed idolatry. You weren't living out your purpose to glorify God and enjoy Him on this earth. And then you and I met Christ, didn't we? We put our faith in Jesus, and all of a sudden Jesus came into our lives, and now He is the one that rules and is sovereign over our hearts and lives. Jesus now, our struggle and our fight and our endeavor by the power of the Spirit of God is that Jesus would be exalted in our hearts and lives. Amen? Christ has to be exalted. And it's Christ's exaltation that is the focus of Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Let me read it to you. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. The apostle writes, For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this morning, my desire, beloved, is that I want to motivate us and move us to be people this year who share Christ with others so that those people would come to know and exalt Christ in their lives as well. And the way that I want to do that is by looking at four features of Christ's exaltation here in in verses 9 through 11 of Philippians 2. First, I want you to see the reason for Christ's exaltation. The reason for Christ's exaltation. And this reason is signaled in verse 9, if you notice, by the words, for this reason also. He's about to tell us about Christ's exaltation, but there's a reason for Christ's exaltation given to us specifically in the previous verses, in verses 5 through 8. Verses 5 through 8 really focus on on the actions of, of Christ while on earth. His actions during His incarnation as a man here on this earth. Look at verse 5. Have this attitude, Christians, in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. What is that attitude that Paul is calling them to? Well, he's been instructing them from chapter 1, verse 27, about the need for unity, that they are to walk in unity. But if this unity is is going to be possible, then they must cultivate an attitude of humility. And the ultimate example, says Paul in verses 6 through 8, of that humility and that humble condescension was the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, during His incarnation. He was the ultimate humble one who put others' needs before His own. How did Christ, the Son of God, show humility? Look at verse 6. 
who, speaking of Christ Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, that's a, that word form there is a way of saying nature or essence. That is, Jesus eternally existed as God, and during his incarnation he didn't cease to be God. This is his point. He existed in the form of God. However, notice that during his time on earth, what did Jesus do? He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. The idea there is that Jesus did not seize upon his divine rights and privileges as God. He came and lived humbly, didn't he? We're seeing that in the Gospel of Mark again and again. He's the suffering servant who came to glorify God by serving fellow mankind, ultimately going to the cross and dying for sins. He humbled himself. He came and lived humbly. Notice verse 7. He emptied himself. This doesn't mean that he ceased to be God, that he ceased to be divine, but that he laid aside the independent use of his divine attributes, that though fully God, he lived as a man dependent upon the Holy Spirit. He was and is the God-man. How did he empty himself? Look at verse 7. By taking the form of a bondservant, And being made in the likeness of men, that is, he humbled himself by taking on a human nature. The God-man, he added human nature to his divine nature so that in the person, the one person of Jesus Christ, we have two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. Jesus is the God-man as we're seeing again and again in the Gospel of Mark, aren't we? He further humbled himself in verse 8, notice, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul says this is the extent of his condescension. He came, took upon human nature. He perfectly obeyed God in all aspects of God's law. He fulfilled all righteousness. This is what we refer to as Jesus' active obedience. That Jesus in his life and conduct fully and perfectly obeyed God on our behalf who have trusted in him. He fulfilled all righteousness, obeyed God's law perfectly. And he humbled himself all the way to death on a cross. Dying on a cross and paying for sins. Satisfying the justice of God. And so Paul says in verse 9, for this reason also, here's the reason, this is why Christ was exalted, because of his personal and joyful act of condescension and humiliation. He took upon human nature, he perfectly obeyed God's law, and he died an atoning death on the cross, on a humiliating cross. That is the extent of his humiliation. And so Paul's point is, It's because of this work of redemption that Christ has been exalted. This is the reason for his exaltation. Now, secondly, notice who exalted Christ. Who exalted Christ? Secondly, let's look at the bestower of Christ's exaltation. The bestower of Christ's exaltation. Who has exalted him? Verse 9, for this reason also, God highly exalted him. God here is a separate person than the Son, right? The Son is the recipient of God the Father's actions. If verses 6 through 8 focus on the actions of the Son and what Jesus did in His great act of humiliation and condescension, verses 9 through 11 focus on what the Father has done in response to the Son's humiliation and condescension. God the Father has joyfully acted 
And he's initiated, exalting his son, Jesus Christ, as a response to the son's humiliation. God has exalted his son. I can't tell you, brothers and sisters, how important it is for us to grasp this reality if we are to be motivated to evangelism in our life. We must be reminded and understand that God's central priority is to see His Son, Jesus, on this earth, treasured, cherished in the hearts and lives of people, including our own. That's what salvation is. People are not just saved from the the power and the punishment of their sin so that they don't go to hell. They are saved so that they stop um, worshiping themselves and instead they exalt Jesus with their lives as they repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ alone. Amen? That's what salvation is. God has initiated exalting His own Son so that we would exalt Him ourselves. That should be our response. Back in Ephesians chapter 1, If you go with her with me in Ephesians chapter 1, we've seen Paul's prayer a couple of times these last few months. And I want to just remind us of this. Paul is praying for his Ephesian brethren in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 18. And he prays for spiritual um, enlightenment, spiritual understanding in three particular areas. Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his, meaning God the Father's, power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of God's might. And he's going to expand upon now the power of God um, as seen in what he did in Jesus Christ, his son. Verse 20, which God brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Notice the activity of God by which he exalts his son. Verse 20, he is the one that raised Christ. He is the one that seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Verse 22, he put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. He is the one who has given Christ as head over all things to the church. And that word head there has the idea of sovereign Lord. God the Father has made his son, Jesus, sovereign Lord. He's affirmed him to that prominent role. God has done that. And if God has done that, brethren... How much more should we want to see that happen in the lives of people who have no hope here on this earth? Because they're living to elevate themselves. And that shows itself in the way that they are pursuing the pleasures of this world. But the greatest pleasure of all is the pleasure found in the arisen and exalted Christ, whom God himself has exalted. Amen? Christ. God himself has exalted his own Son, I want you to see that this was central to the preaching of the early church in the book of Acts. The fact that the God of the Old Testament, now through this Jesus, he has exalted his risen, exalted, elevated son. Okay, and I want you to go to Acts chapter 2 with me. Acts chapter 2. This 
This is Peter preaching at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And he addresses the multitudes in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And then notice verse 24. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. Whenever the early church preached the the resurrection of Christ, that was alluding to the exalted status of Jesus. And then notice verse 32. This Jesus, God raised up again to which we are all witnesses, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God, the Father, has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. See, in the early church, the preaching centered on the fact that the God of the Old Testament has now put forth this son of his. He is the risen, exalted one. He is the one that has the place of all prominence, and God himself has initiated that. Look at Acts chapter 5 with me. Acts chapter 5. Here the apostles stand before the religious leaders. For preaching the gospel again after having been forbidden not to preach the gospel. And now they have to defend themselves. Verse 25 of Acts chapter 5 says, But what someone came and reported to them, The men whom you put in prison, namely the apostles, are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. When they had brought them uh, brought them in, they stood them before the council, that is, before the Jewish Sanhedrin, the religious um, ruling body of the Jews. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And watch this. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God, what? Exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Notice the reference to the Holy Spirit there. The Holy Spirit's mission was to come and point to Jesus Christ, to the risen, exalted one. This was so typical of the early church. This, the God of the Old Testament, the one true God has put forth his son. He is the risen Christ. He is the exalted Christ. You must bow to him. You must turn from your sins and put your faith in him. He is Lord and no one else. He's Lord. Now, with all of this emphasis... Someone might say, on the exaltation of the Son of God, of Christ. We might ask this question. Is this focus or emphasis on the exaltation of the Son, of Christ, to the detriment of the glory of the Father? Are we undermining 
God the Father, when we say that we ought to live our lives on this earth and everything exalting Christ, including sharing Christ with others, we should want to see Jesus exalted. Is this to the detriment of the glory of the Father? And the answer is a definitive no. The Father, brothers and sisters, is delighted and glorified when His Son is exalted. It's like two sides of the same coin. God is glorified when Jesus is exalted, and to exalt the Son is to glorify the Father. In fact, if you read, we don't have time to do this, but if you read um, the the chapters of, of the Gospel of John, over and over again, there's this emphasis that Jesus, the hour has come, the hour of Jesus' death has come, and the and that hour, that death, Jesus through that is going to glorify the Father. And the Father glorifies the Son as a response to Jesus' atoning death. And the Spirit comes to awaken the, the uh, blind spiritual eyes of people in this world to see the glory of Christ and in so doing glorifying the Father. There's this amazing Trinitarian priority of exalting Jesus, in other words. That when you and I exalt Christ, we glorify God the Father. And the Spirit came at Pentecost in a new way with the birth of the church to awaken the hearts of spiritually dead sinners to see the glory of Christ, and in so doing, the Father is glorified. Such a beautiful reality. So there is no contradiction or competition, is my point, within the Godhead regarding the exaltation of the Son. The Father planned redemption, the Son executed redemption, and the Spirit applies redemption to the hearts of spiritually dead people so that their eyes are opened and they come to know and exalt Jesus. Listen, what does God, exalting His Son this way, and even as we saw the preaching of the early church, where does this message centered on the exalted Jesus mean for you and I? It means that if God's heart is for His Son, that His Son would be glorified, then you and I should have that, the exaltation of Christ, as our highest and greatest priority in everything that we do. Amen? In everything that we do. I submit to you, this is the greatest motivation to see Jesus exalted for us sharing our faith with our loved ones, sharing our faith with our friends, sharing our faith with our neighbors, sharing our our faith with anybody that the Lord brings to our lives. The glory of Jesus Christ, that they would come to treasure and cherish Jesus as Lord and Savior and live for Him. That is the greatest motivation. You know, we always talk about glorifying God. And what that means. And it means an array of things. That in everything we ought to, in everything, whether we eat or drink, even the most menial things, we bring glory to God. We say, I want to live for God's glory, we say. You know what brings God's glory, brothers and sisters? Christian, that you tell people about His Son. Simple words. Basic words. That you grow in the knowledge of Jesus so that you would share about the one who has given everything for you, who went to the cross and died for your sins. Are you moved by the reality that the Father desires that His Son would be made much of and that He has awakened you from spiritual death and given you spiritual eyes to see Jesus so that now He wants you to go out and be faithful to proclaiming that message as well, that Jesus is the risen, exalted King and that they must bow the knee to Him. We should move to doing that. There is no hope apart from Him. So if God's act was to bestow honor upon His Son, we should long for the same thing. We should share the heart of God 
in this. Now, thirdly, the nature of Christ's exaltation. I want to show us the nature of Christ's exaltation. How does God exalt Christ? In other words, what does it mean that God exalted Christ? Look at verse 9. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. I want you to note here that God the Father acts to exalt Christ in two primary ways here. First, Christ is exalted to the place of supreme prominence here. Look at verse 9. It says that God highly exalted Christ. The verb here translated highly exalted is a compound word that means to, to raise up, to lift up, to make much of, to magnify someone. It has a sense of paying tribute to someone. It has a sense of honoring someone to a unique status here. And then there's a word attached to the front of that word exalted, translated highly. It's the Greek huper. It intensifies this exaltation of Christ. He's highly exalted over and above. He is super exalted. No one compares to Jesus is Paul's emphasis. God has placed Jesus in a place of supreme prominence. There he's the unrivaled, unmatched, unique, incomparable one. He is the above and beyond one. He is the exalted Christ. That's what God the Father has done. So, and when we go to Psalms like Psalm 2, which quotes God there as referring to his son as the appointed king, and then Psalm 2.11 says that we must worship the Son, that we must pay homage to the Son, literally kiss the Son. We must treat the Son of God in a manner befitting a king. Why? Because he's God the Father's appointed king. Therefore, we must acknowledge him as such. We must confess him as such. And Psalm 110 and verse 1 says that God has seated Christ at his right hand, which is the place of supreme prominence and highest honor. Jesus sits in the supreme place of prominence. Secondly, Christ is exalted in that God has given him a name which is above every name. Look at verse 9. God highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. What name is that? You know, some have said that Paul is referring to the name Jesus here. I used to think that as well as a young Christian. But Jesus... The name Jesus wouldn't be a new name to the Lord, right? It was given to him at his birth. Also, Jesus wasn't a unique name. Others had the name Jesus before and after the Lord's arrival. Furthermore, Jesus wouldn't be a name that would require people to to bow and worship him. Others had the name Jesus. So what's the name that Paul is talking about? And I think the grammar and the context here help us determine what name Paul is talking about. Notice verse 10. Verse 10 doesn't say, it does not say, at the name Jesus. At the name, i.e. Jesus. It says, at the name of Jesus. In other words, the name which belongs to Jesus. For you Greek scholars, it's a possessive genitive here. It's the name which belongs to Jesus. That unique name that was given to Jesus. And so what name was given to Jesus at his exaltation and uniquely given to him by God. I think we get the answer in verse 11. Look there. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. That's the name. Lord. Kurios. 
The New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament name for God, Yahweh, often or translated in the Old Testament in caps L-O-R-D, the name Yahweh. He says, Lord, Jesus is Lord. He is the one who deserves universal worship. And one day all will worship him. Jesus is Lord. And so Paul says, the father has exalted his son by giving him the place of supreme prominence and the name of supreme worship. Wow. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who came wrapped in a manger last year, right? That we just celebrated during Christmas time. Can I ask you, is this the Jesus you have come to know and put your faith in? This exalted one who holds the place of supreme prominence, who has the name of supreme worship, he requires all adoration and all worship, and one day all will bow to him. Is this the Christ that you have put your faith in? And can I ask you a follow-up question, believer, Christian? As you share Christ with other people, family, extended family, people out in the world, co-workers, neighbors, whoever, is this the Jesus that you share with other people? The risen, exalted Christ. Is this the one that you share with others? This is why it's so important to resolve, even at the turn of the new year, isn't it? That we would be people who would read our Bibles. You know why? Not so that we could clock in and out and be goody-goody Christians and all of that and conform to some standard so that others might look at us and think how great we are because we read our Bibles every single day. We should resolve to read God's Word so that we might come to know Jesus in a greater way. Amen? That we might come to know a person, our triune God in a greater way. You know why? Because that's going to impact your life in many ways. And one of the ways that it's going to impact you is that you're going to see, have a greater vision of the majesty and the glory of God. And he is the one that you're going to share with other people out in the world. You're going to present to them a Jesus who is high and exalted, and yet he humbled himself and condescended to earth to go to the cross and die for their sins if they will turn and put their faith in him. This is why we must grow in our understanding of God's word. This is why we must see the majesty of God on the pages of scripture so that we might present this exalted Jesus to a lost world that desperately needs hope. Which leads us to our fourth point. What is the implication of Christ's exaltation? What is the implication of Christ's exaltation? In other words, what does this mean for you and I? If God's son has humbled himself, has became a man, he perfectly obeyed God all the way to the cross, paying for our sins, and as a result of Jesus' condescension and humiliation, God the Father has exalted him above all. What does this mean for you and I? It means this, that you and I must strive personally, first and foremost, to know and to love and to worship and to see Christ exalted in our lives, first and foremost, so that the lost world can see that in us. This must show itself first and foremost in our lives. How are we, brothers and sisters, going to call a lost world to bow the knee to King Jesus, to exalt and make much of Jesus, if they don't see that in our lives first and foremost? And then, another implication is that we must share this Christ. We must tell people about this Jesus. After all, this is where all is headed, right? Look at verse 10. What is the ultimate purpose, goal of God exalting Christ? Look at verse 10. So that 
At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is where everything is headed. All will worship and bow to the exalted Son of God, and that is what glorifies God the Father. Amen? All will exalt Him. One glorious day, when Christ returns, there will be universal worship, and this does not mean that every person will worship willingly and joyfully, but that all will verbally acknowledge the fact that Jesus is Lord. Some will do that voluntarily, joyfully, because Jesus is their Savior and their Lord. Others will do that force by force. But all will bow to Jesus as Lord. Can I ask you this morning, is this your greatest passion and desire? To see this already beginning to happen on this earth, that people bow the knee to the exalted Christ? Have you been moved by your salvation in such a way that you understand that you are an undeserving sinner who deserved hell, wrath, and condemnation, and that Jesus has saved you, and that part and parcel of your calling as a believer, as a follower of Christ, is that now you would call others to bow the knee to this Lord and Savior. Is this the passion of your heart, driven and motivated by love for Christ and the heart of God for His Son? You know, exalting Christ in everything was Paul's passion. Paul had this passion that in all of his circumstances and everything that happened in his life, he wanted to see the name of Christ magnified, the name of Christ exalted. He was in jail when he writes Philippians. It had been about 10 years since he had founded this church at Philippi. And I want you to notice that he's in jail and these Philippian brethren want to know how their pastor is doing, their founding pastor. They want to know how Paul is doing, so he he sends them a report about how he's doing in jail on house arrest, and he essentially says this, you know what, contrary to what you might think, being in jail in these difficult circumstances in the capital of Rome, he says, I'm actually doing quite well. But it's not because he's comfortable. It's not because circumstances are everything that he would want them to be. I mean, this is the great Apostle Paul, the, the church planter, the evangelist, the one who follows up with churches and goes and checks up on them. He trains leaders. He partners with other men. I mean, he's trained pastors at a high level, and yet he's sitting in jail on house arrest in Rome, and he says, you know what? I'm good. What explains that? Well, let me show you. Look at verse 12. He says, now I want you to know, Philippian brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. There's the focus right there. Underline that. Paul was so fixated that his, on the fact that his mission was to see the gospel advanced on this earth. And the gospel is the good news centered on the person and the work of the risen, exalted Christ, right? Yes, we just saw that. Paul was fixated on that. It didn't matter what happened to him. Sure, he had sorrow. Sure, he was discouraged. Sure, he had sadness. He was a man living under the power of the Spirit, just like you and I. But his focus was on the things of heaven, that Jesus would be made much of on this earth as he's made much of in heaven. And notice, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Verse 13, so that 
my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And I want you to just keep your finger there and go to chapter 4 and verse 20. We're going to go back to chapter 1, but notice chapter 4 and verse 20, what he says. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. And here it is. And the saints, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. You know what had happened? Paul was at the capital in jail in Rome, and he was such an evangelist that he was preaching the gospel to everyone, including the hierarchy of Roman soldiers, and some of them have come to know Christ. He says, that is where my heart is. I want to see the progress of the gospel in the hearts of people, so it doesn't matter what is going on as far as my circumstances go, as long as Jesus' cause is being advanced on this earth. Evangelism was taking place amidst Paul's difficult circumstances. Not only that, but then notice verse 14. And that most of the brethren, now he's going to talk about Christians. Not only is evangelism happening, but he says edification is happening. Because most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. You know what Paul says? He says, I am thankful for the progress of the gospel. Let me tell you, that's what all of this has led to. There are brethren Christians that as they hear and they've watched me live my life in the midst of these circumstances, the gospel is being advanced in their life in that they are mature maturing in the greater Christ-likeness. I mean, this is all under disciple-making right here. Isn't disciple-making evangelism, edification, leading all to exaltation? Yes. Evangelism is happening, edification is happening, and Christ is being exalted. Look at verse 15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. He's talking about brethren who are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Paul is saying there are all kinds of gospel preachers. There are Christian preachers who, are, who seemingly look like they're just being faithful. Others seem like they're doing it from impure motives. He says, what then, verse 18, what do I do with this? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. In this, not in my circumstances, in this, in that Christ is proclaimed, I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me... To live is Christ and to die is gain. Man, he knows this could lead to his death, right? History tells us that he went on to live at least two to four more years and then he was put to death. But he doesn't know at this point. But he says, whether I live or whether I die, I want Jesus to be exalted. I want Christ to be magnified in everything that I do. I want you to notice in chapter 3, last text we'll look at, chapter 3. His passion was to see Christ exalted in everything in his life, including evangelism. And as he contemplates his own life and coming to know Christ, listen to what he says in chapter 3 of verse 7. And verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He's contemplating his credentials in verses 4 through 6. 
All those credentials that prior to coming to know Jesus, Paul would have boasted in as a way of gaining him favor before God. He says, all of those things, whatever those things were gained that I counted as gain to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, what about in the present, Paul? It's one thing to like count our, our past as nothing in comparison to having to know Jesus. But now think about this. This is now 30 years after Paul's conversion. And notice what he says in verse 8 about how he still thinks about his Christian life. More than that, verse 8, I count present tense. I presently count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. He says, not only in the past do I consider everything as nothing in comparison to knowing and exalting Jesus, in the present, that's how I seek to live my life. And what about in the future, Paul? What about in the future? Look at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Past, present, future, brothers and sisters, Paul's desire was to exalt Christ, to see people come to know Christ, to see people built up in Christ. Paul's passion was to see Jesus exalted as there was disciple-making taking place and Jesus' church was being built on earth. We should share that passion, amen? That should be the passion of our hearts and lives. You see, salvation is not first and foremost about us. It isn't about you and I first and foremost. We benefit from the atoning work of Christ, but Jesus' first and singular purpose, first and foremost, was to glorify his Father. That's why he came. And we benefit from that beautiful, wonderful, wondrous atoning death, don't we? But salvation is not first and foremost about us. It's about him. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You know what we've been called to? Not just to be delivered and rescued from condemnation. We have been called unto mission. To proclaiming the excellencies of who Christ is and what he has done for the worst of sinners, including ourselves. Amen? That's why we are here, beloved. God's heart is for his son to be exalted in the hearts of men. And our hearts should be motivated to see the same thing happen. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, thank you. Thank you for the beauty and the precious truth that you set forth a plan from the, before the foundation of the world. That your son, your eternal son, would come, on, come to earth, take upon human nature, perfectly obey your commands, fulfill all righteousness, die on the cross, a substitutionary atoning death on behalf of sinners who repent and believe, and that you rose him from the dead, you raised him from the dead and exalted him to your right hand. 
We thank you for the precious truth of the gospel, the good news centered on the person and the work of your son. Oh, Lord, move in our hearts. Motivate us this year. Fuel our hearts so that we would want to see Christ exalted in the same way in the hearts of those whom we love, in the hearts of our friends, in the hearts of coworkers, in the hearts of neighbors. Lord, may they see the joy that we have because we have hope in Jesus so that that would become an opportunity for us to be able to tell them about the hope that is in us. Lord, help us to do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.